Okay, everybody, um, let's get started. I'd like to welcome everybody to our first uh, NDISC talk of the semester. So this is quite exciting. Uh, we're certainly gonna start with a bang, first with Fred Kaplan, who I'll introduce in just a second. And our next speaker is Martin Sherwin, who wrote uh, Gambling with Armageddon, and he's coming on September 21st. So put that on your calendar. We've got bunches of other great speakers who you can find on the NDISC website. Uh, just Google NDISC. Uh, we're very glad to have you here, and we're especially glad to have Fred Kaplan, who is a uh, quite well-known author, uh, Pulitzer Prize finalist. Uh, he's written six books, and the one he's going to talk about today is The Bomb, which is about, guess what, The Atomic Bomb. Uh, among his other books, this is the one that launched his career, Wizards of Armageddon, uh, a great book on, I don't know, you might call them the, the great strategists of the early nuclear uh, era. Uh, he also wrote, among others, Dark Territory, Secret History of Our Efforts in Cyber Warfare, an extremely scary book uh, about how we bumbled our way uh, into trying to fight cyber warfare. Um, he's uh, a graduate of um, MIT, so great to have him here. And... Uh, we very much look forward to your talk, and then there'll be a Q&A. And in the Q&A, we're going to try you know, a trust system. Um, we're going to try to have it where people can unmute themselves and hopefully you know, turn on your video and ask questions. If you want to, uh, please raise your hand through the raise hand function under participant menu. Um, but as things are going, if you want to interject instead of just doing the two-finger please uh, feel free to unmute and jump in. If that doesn't work out, if it turns into chaos, we'll restore order and go back to our old ways. But you know, to initially participate, do the raise hand function under participants and I'll call on you in the order in which you volunteered. But for the two finger, we're gonna try the trust system. Uh, just unmute, start your video, jump in. And if you do so respectfully, we'll continue that system throughout the session. So uh, Dr. Kaplan, please uh, take it away. Thank you very much. Okay, well, thanks for inviting me to this. Thanks for being there. I'm sorry I can't be there in person, but I guess none of you are there in person either. So that's <clears throat> just the way of the world right now. Um, I should also say I'm sort of contractually obligated to say that I also write what's called the War Stories column in Slate. So you can look at that for my take on ongoing daily affairs. So rather than, than uh, <clears throat> take you through the whole chronicle of the story, I thought I would address a few basic themes. One is that nuclear war policy in the United States is not and never has been just about nuclear deterrence, just about a second strike attack uh, responding to an enemy's first strike. It has always been, it has always had a component, sometimes dominant, sometimes less so, of nuclear war fighting, of launching a first strike. If not completely out of the blue, then in response to a conventional invasion that we somehow can't respond to just using conventional forces. Second theme is that we have always and still do have way, way, way more nuclear weapons than are required even by uh, 
a conservative definition of the standard of what the generals think is required. And the third is that we have come closer to using nuclear weapons, or to put it more specifically, presidents, more presidents have actively thought about and mauled over and been briefed on the option of using nuclear weapons in a crisis. But this has happened more often than is generally understood. Um, okay, so, <clears throat> uh oh, Mike. My cat has come on the table, this might happen. So uh, let's start with the beginning in terms of first strike, second strike. You know, keep in mind that we had already started to acquire roughly a thousand nuclear weapons at a time when the Soviet Union had almost none. We thought they had more than they did at the time, but they ended up having about none. The thing is we had almost nothing of a conventional army after the demobilization uh, ending World War II. And it was believed that if the Russians or the Chinese or whoever attacked the free world, that not only were nuclear weapons the only option that we would have, but that it was a good option to have. The, the policy that was described by John Foster Dulles, President Eisenhower's Secretary of State as massive retaliation in a speech in 1954 was actually much more massive than you might think. The first integrated nuclear war plan, it was called the Single Integrated Operational Plan, <clears throat> which was when all the nuclear weapons of the Army, Air Force, and Navy at the time were integrated into a single plan supervised by the Strategic Air Command, uh, took place in 1960. And at that time, it was called PSYOP 62 because it was going to take effect in fiscal year 1962. And the plan, <clears throat> excuse me, this was the war plan. It was that if the Soviet Union or communist China, which at the time was thought to be pretty much the same thing, uh, invaded, not launched a nuclear weapon on, but invaded some strip of the three of the free world that we thought was vital territory, West Berlin, West Germany, Taiwan, whatever, <clears throat> then our policy was to launch as much of our nuclear arsenal as we could, as fast as we could. And this was about <clears throat> 7,000 megatons. Now, someone asked how many people would die as a result of this attack. Calculation was made and it was about 285 million people. <clears throat> and that was just people in the Soviet Union and the Eastern, Eastern Europe. This was, this attack would be against every target that had ever been identified as a possible target in the Soviet Union, communist China and the satellite nations of Eastern Europe. 285 million people, not including radioactive fallout, which would spread throughout the globe. So around that time, there were a group of strategists, mainly at the Rand Corporation, who they weren't doves. And, and it's not like they weren't cold warriors. Everybody was a cold warrior back then. But they thought that this was not only morally horrifying, but strategically 
incredible that the Soviets just wouldn't believe that we would unleash this kind of attack because the Soviets were starting to acquire their own nuclear weapons. And if we launched massive retaliation against them, they could launch massive retaliation back against us. So this was like a suicide pact and they might not believe that we would engage in this suicide pact. Now we still didn't have much in the way of conventional forces. So some of these strategists started thinking, we've got to come up with some way to figure out how to use nuclear weapons in a limited, in a limited, credible way. And some people came up with this idea that, well, what if we, let's say Russians invade West Berlin, something like that. And we just took a, a small number of our nuclear weapons and we launched them at all of their strategic forces, their bomber bases, their missiles, their submarine pins, and then said to them, okay, we've pretty much disarmed you. You might have a few left, but if you retaliate against us now, we've got all these weapons in our submarines and bombers that are up in the air on constant alert and missiles that are buried in our ICBM silos. They didn't exist at the time, but they were about to be. And then we'll really let you have it. So just surrender now, back off, <clears throat> stop your aggressive actions against West Germany or whatever, and let's call this off before, before you know, catastrophe occurs. Now, when John Kennedy was elected president in 1960, and he made Robert McNamara Secretary of Defense, McNamara hired some of these guys from RAND to be his assistants or <coughs> his consultants. And he got a briefing on the PSYOP and he was horrified. I mean, it was the, the head of SAC at the time was this general named Tommy Power. And he thought that this was all really funny. And he would say things to McNamara like, one bomb, there was, there was an enormous air defense radar in Albania and one gigantic nuclear weapon, I think nine megatons would destroy this air defense radar and basically wipe out Albania. And Power says to McNamara, I hope you don't have any friends or relatives in, in Albania, Mr. Secretary, because we're just gonna have to wipe it out. So, you know, McNamara was just appalled and his, his advisors told him, well, there's this guy at Rand who uh, named Bill Kaufman, he's come up with this alternative strategy. And Kaufman briefed him on this, what is called counterforce strategy. And uh, McNamara thought this was an interesting idea, but he said two things. He says, well, first of all, let's say that the Soviets start building a lot of weapons then we have to build a lot of weapons ourselves to destroy their weapons. This unleashes an arms race. How do we get out of this? And Kaufman said, well, I don't know. And second, McNamara said, now, what if the Soviets just don't go in for this? We, we try to play this rational game with them and they just don't buy it and they just unleash, you know, a, a massive retaliation against us too. How do we, how do we make them, uh, how do we make them convinced that we'll, we will, that we're on the level here? And he hadn't really figured that out either. And those two questions have really been the two main questions that have been dominant 
to nuclear strategy at a more refined level, but still ever since. Now, what happened was that a couple of years into the Kennedy administration, the Europeans started, West Europeans, talking about their, their uh, building their own nuclear bombs, the British and French in particular. French, uh, president de Gaulle in France would say, how can I trust the American president to risk New York for Paris? In other words, if, 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 if the Russians are, are, are threatening Europe and uh, Paris is threatened, Will the, will the American president really launch a nuclear attack on the Soviet Union with the possibility that the Soviets will retaliate and destroy New York? And to keep the Europeans from building nuclear weapons, McNamara talked about this counterforce idea. Well, we have this idea, he told them at the Athens NATO conference in 1962, that we're just gonna keep this confined to military targets. So maybe we don't have to risk Paris or New York. And they thought this was interesting, but the French went ahead and built their own nuclear arsenal anyway, as did the British. Now, <clears throat> something happened in 1961. Your, your next speaker is going to talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, so I'm not going to talk about that. But I'm going to talk about the Berlin Crisis of 1961, which almost nobody remembers, and which even at the time was overshadowed a year later by the Cuban Missile Crisis. But what happened was that in 1961, the young President John Kennedy has a summit with Nikita Khrushchev, who thinks is just some naive kid. And Khrushchev says, okay, we're gonna end World War II now. I'm just gonna occupy all of West Berlin by the end of the year. And if you don't like it, there's gonna be a war. Now, what's often not recalled nowadays since Germany has been unified, since before many of you were born, but Berlin used to be divided in two, West Berlin, East Berlin. The city of, Ber I mean, West Germany, East Germany. The city of Berlin was also divided into West Berlin and East Berlin. Berlin was a hundred miles inside East Germany. West Berlin was this landlocked island, which we promised to secure. It was a beacon of freedom. There were 2 million people living there. It was, it was the centerpiece of several Cold War crises. If the Soviets wanted to just move in and take it over, to stop them, we would have had to invade 100 miles of East Germany, which we had no ability to do at the time, or use nuclear weapons. So now Kennedy was in a spot. <clears throat> what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So there were lots of meetings. And a lot of these meetings have been declassified now in the Kennedy documents, tapes in the Kennedy Library. Uh, hasn't been written about much though. This idea of Bill Kaufman's was presented to him as a possibility. There was an NSC meeting about it. <clears throat> Kennedy himself had questions. He had meetings with the Joint Chiefs of Staff about it. But then he asked a few questions and he discovered a couple things. One, if we don't get all of the Soviet weapons, and it wouldn't take much. The, the, it turned out we, we recalled, we, we realized by this time the Soviets had almost no weapons. That 44 bombers launching weapons on 88 of their targets would have wiped out their forces. But if a few survived, then what would have happened? And the people who did the study said, well, uh, they attacked the United States. Uh, you know, maybe a couple hundred thousand people will die. and." 
if they attack shorter range missiles in Europe, maybe a million West Europeans would die. And to Kennedy, that was it. It wasn't, if there was any time in history that the United States had what could be called strategic superiority against the Soviet Union. We had, you know, several hundred weapons. The Soviet Union had four ICBMs, a handful of bombers that, that were not loaded up with nuclear weapons, that were not on alert. Same thing with submarines. And yet the consequences of, of starting a nuclear war were so horrific that Kennedy decided not to do it. But before he came to that period, there were a lot of meetings. And it's worth understanding back then how casually people thought, except for presidents, about the use of nuclear weapons. For example, in one of these meetings where it was discussed, what do we do if, if the Soviets take over West Berlin? And by the way, at the time, nobody, <clears throat> absolutely nobody in government was saying, well, I guess we'll just have to let West Berlin go. Nobody said that. That was not on the table. So, uh, but there were talks, for example, Secretary of Defense McNamara thought it was time to start building conventional, a conventional army <clears throat> so that we could repel a Soviet land invasion with conventional, with a conventional uh, counter invasion or defense. There, the, the, the head of NATO at the time, General Loris Norstad said this would be a terrible idea because if the Soviets saw us building a conventional defense, they might think that we were too afraid to use nuclear weapons. And if we thought that, that would be the end of deterrence. The only thing deterring them was the idea, was the perception that we were willing and able to use nukes. And if, that, if, we, if they thought we weren't gonna do that, that would be the end of the deterrence. Kennedy didn't quite agree with that, but they moved on. Okay, what happens if? And so they said, okay, what if the Soviets move a company of troops into West Berlin? Okay, there would be phase one. And phase one was, well, we will, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll move some airplanes into the sky and do a blockade of, of the Black Sea. Phase two, what if they move a battalion? Well, we'll, uh, anyway, the, I forget the, every single phase, but the point was at phase four was, okay, none of this worked. They're just taking over West Berlin. What do we do? Phase four was we use nukes. And phase four was divided into three parts. Phase four A, we just kind of shoot off a nuclear weapon, one nuclear weapon, you know, like over the Atlantic Ocean or something, just to give them a signal. A shot across the bow to say, look, we're about to get serious here. You might want to have some second thoughts now. Okay, what if that still didn't stop them? Phase 4B, we fire tactical nuclear. We had thousands of small nuclear weapons in Western Europe, short range battlefield atomic weapons. We would start using them. We would fire them against Soviet army to stop them in their tracks. Okay, what if that didn't work? Well, <clears throat> phase four C, general war. General war meant nuclear all out, PSYOP 62, unload everything. Paul Nitze, who was an assistant secretary of defense at the time, 
and who was a kind of a very public hawk for de decades afterwards, argued we should move instantly to option to, to 4C. Because if we messed around with this 4A and B first, the Russians might get in a first strike and then we could lose. If we went instantly to 4C, then there was a possibility that we could win. He used that word win. Now, what ultimately happened was Kennedy had uh, his de deputy secretary of defense give a speech. And again, leading up to the Kennedy administration, it was thought that there was a missile gap and the Russians were way ahead of this. Once Kennedy was put in office, the first data came back from reconnaissance satellites. And as I said earlier, it turned out they had nothing. So Kennedy had his deputy secretary of defense give a speech saying, okay, look, Russians, we know what's up. There is no missile gap, except one that we're ahead of. We have the data now. We know what you have. We know what we have. We're way ahead. You could even launch a first strike and we would still be way ahead. And Khrushchev realized that his bluff was called and he feared an American first strike. And so, and he knew that his own ICBM program was in, in the, it was, it was going nowhere. And so he thought he had to do something very quickly to make up a balance, to give him some deterrent. And so he put a bunch of medium range missiles in Cuba, secretly, he thought, but we saw him do it. So I'll leave Cuba missile crisis. We can talk about that later, but in the meantime, what happens? So Mac, what happens with the general arms race after this? So McNamara revises the PSYOP so that it has some limited nuclear options along the lines of the counterforce plan. And PSYOP 63 reflects some of this. It talks about five different options. We use, we just hit their nuclear weapons or we just hit their military targets or we just hit, you know, military targets away from cities and military targets that happen to be in cities. Anyway, there was like five different options besides just hitting everything. Now, what I did not realize until I started doing the research for this book is that this actually never happened, not for decades, that when, they, when the Joint Chiefs of Staff went to rewrite the PSYOP, at the beginning of all these clauses about limited options, they would always add the words, to the extent practical, or to the extent this is consistent with military objectives. And the people at SAC always concluded that it was not practical, and it, or it was not objective, to, uh, consistent with military objectives. And they pretty much kept everything the way it was not until almost at the end of the Cold War, in the late 1980s, did we move away from massive retaliation. I mean, it was a matter of part skill, but part luck that, you know, the whole world didn't blow up, uh, you know, before the Cold War was over. It's just, just amazing. In the 1970s, there was a serious, serious effort to move to limited options. I mean, really limited options. But again, it just was not, let me, there's the Joint Chiefs in Washington and then a Strategic Air Command in Omaha. 
And Strategic Air Command has a division called the Joint Strategic Target Planning Staff. And they translate the policies made by the Joint Chiefs into actual targeting plans. What weapons go against what targets when? And from the JSTPS until really very, very late in the day, that pretty much stayed the same. And partly for practical reasons. I mean, one thing that, that Secretary of Defense James Schlesinger and Secretary of State Henry Kissinger wanted to do during the Nixon and Ford administrations was to just, just send a hand, just a small number of weapons, uh, not even necessarily uh, you know, knocking out all of the Soviet nuclear forces, which had grown quite large by this time, but just to send a signal, just to kind of keep this thing limited. Well, somebody in intelligence kind of reversed engineered uh, Soviet air defense radar, anti-missile radar systems, you know, ballistic missile early warning systems. And they wanted to know how many weapons do we have to launch toward the Soviet Union before the radar screen in Moscow just looks like a gigantic blob? In other words, they can't tell whether it's discrete nuclear, it's not like a series of dots and one dot equals each missile, it's just a blob and they don't know how many are coming. Well, it turned out the maximum was 200. And yet at the time, James Schlesinger's plan for a limited nuclear war, limited nuclear options they were called, the most limited of those options was more than 200 weapons. So even if we did this, the Russians would have no way of distinguishing this from an all out attack to which they would respond with all out retaliation. Now, what changed all this? Uh, what changed all this actually was something very interesting that, that is hard to believe and I, found it hard to believe myself when I learned about it when researching this book. And that was in the, in the, in the, in the Reagan administration. And then yeah, in the Reagan administration of all places when, uh, and, and then especially when George H.W. Bush became president and Dick Cheney of all people was secretary of defense, there was a civil servant in the Pentagon who was put in charge of strategic planning. And he was a civilian named uh, Frank Miller. And he, he, got, he, read, he went back and read all the classified documents from McNamara and Schlesinger talking about limited options and all these things. And he was a big believer in this. He, he thought this was good. And then he sat in on the new PSYOP briefing with Secretary Cheney and they're listening. And he doesn't hear anything about limited options. And he tells Cheney afterwards, he goes, listen, he explains what all these documents said, but they're not saying anything. And, and there are plans in, in, the, in the news, in the PSYOP to like, launching 700 nuclear weapons against targets in Moscow, 700. Uh, and so Cheney gives him the authority to go to Moscow, to go to Moscow, to go to SAC headquarters and to look at the PSYOP, to take a close, close, close look at the PSYOP and the targeting plan such that no civilian and almost no military person in Washington had ever seen before. 
And the degree of overkill, and this was in the late 1980s, was astonishing. As I said, 700 weapons targeted in Moscow. There was an anti-ballistic missile site outside of Sheremetyevo airport in Moscow that we learned after the Cold War was over was completely useless. There were 64 anti-ballistic missiles in this. We aimed 67 nuclear weapons at this one site. There was an air, there was a, a, a bomber base in the Arctic Circle, Soviet Army base. This was would be used for, for, for where bombers would go, Soviet bombers would go after dropping the bombs on the United States. It was so cold, it couldn't even be used for half of the year. 17 nuclear bombs were, were targeted on this, this, this air base. Functionally, it was like this. Let's say there was a, a, a requirement, <clears throat> destroy the Soviet tank army, okay. There were nuclear weapons targeted not only on the Soviet tank army, but also on the factories that built the tanks and on the factories that built the spare parts for those factories building the tanks and for the factories where the metal was. I mean, it's like if somebody said, I want to prevent you from having dinner tonight. And not only do they you know, destroy your cupboard and your kitchen, but they also destroy your oven and your refrigerator and the grocery store where you buy your food down the street and the roads between your house. In other words, it was just overkill to a degree that was just, just mind blowing. And so, Frank Miller and his staff and some people at SAC went over and they figured out, okay, without changing policy at all, without changing anything in the policy of what nuclear weapons are designed to do and what, what kinds of targets you need to hit, how many weapons do we really need? And at the time we had 12,000 long range nuclear weapons. And after the end of the study, it was concluded that half of them could be eliminated and we would still be able to achieve all of our objectives. And then the Soviet Union implodes. A lot of these targets were surface to air missile batteries in Eastern Europe that would shoot down American bombers as they went on their way to the Soviet Union to bomb targets. Okay, now Eastern Europe is no longer, there's no more Soviet Union. Eastern Europe, they're independent nations now. Some of them eventually joined NATO. So all of those targets, they're no longer targets. So then how many weapons do we need? Came 3,000, 3,000 from 12,000. This, this had nothing to do with any arms control treaty or, or anything of the sort or any kind of dovish evaluation, well, we don't really need to do this much damage. We don't need, no, this was the same policy. We had four times as many nuclear weapons as we needed. And then uh, arms control agreements were struck first by George H.W. Bush on, uh, that, that started out from that. Weapons were, were reduced to that. And then when Obama came along, I'm not, well, let's see, we have a little bit more time. Obama came along 
and uh, New Start reduced this to 1500. Actually, it was a little more than 1500 because it was 1500 under certain counting rules where one bomber counted as one weapon. And in fact, US bombers, and we had 100 or so, they could carry up to 20 bombs, cruise missiles, and so forth. So actually, it was more than 1500, but it was 1500. And Obama decided to have another review of the PSYOP. And this went even deeper than what Frank Miller had got. There were months worth of meetings in Omaha and in Washington, the White House, the, the joint the, in the Pentagon, and they went over every single target. And sometimes they would ask, okay, does this really need to be a target? If it does need to be a target, do we really need to aim two weapons at it? How about if we just aimed one weapon at it? Anyway, at the end of it, the commander of SAC, and which then was called the Strategic Command, the name was changed, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff concluded that, yeah, we could cut the number of weapons by one third uh, without any harm to our national security. So from like 1,500 to 1,000. But the chiefs told Obama, politically, we don't wanna do this unless the Russians do the same. It wouldn't really matter to our national security, but we were still, you know, considering follow-on negotiations to start too at that time. Why give them any leverage in, in these next negotiations? And why give them any perception of some kind of edge? And Obama actually agreed with this. Obama, who is very skeptical of all this nuclear stuff, uh, he didn't see the point of, of giving away leverage before a negotiation. And also, while there, there's one meeting that I heard about where they're discussing the possibility of, of maybe adopting a no first use policy. And Obama really doesn't believe that any president would ever use nuclear weapons first, partly because there's still a stigma to this and partly because now we, we really do have pretty strong conventional armies. Uh, and can, can do quite a lot. Uh, a lot of war games show that we do pretty well in a war against Russia over the Baltics, say, even if nuclear weapons aren't used. So he figured we would use a conventional defense. But even so, in the world of alliances, especially with the Asia allies, South Korea and Japan, uh, the idea that we would use nuclear weapons to counter aggression against them. This is called extended deterrence. In other words, using nuclear weapons as not only deterrent for, a, for against a strike against us, but to extend this to deter strikes against our allies, it was accepted reluctantly by Obama and Biden, although they really don't quite believe it, but still that yeah, we, we, we can't do away completely with this no first use idea because then the, the allies would go nuts. And by the way, some of these allies would start building nuclear weapons of their own. It's pretty well accepted that if we one day just, and this was a big concern when Trump was in office and he almost said such things, that if we basically told Japan, you know, if, if China comes after you, um, you know, we've got we've got some navy and airplanes there, but we're we're not gonna we're not gonna risk nuclear weapons on this. 
they would almost certainly start building their own nuclear arsenal and that would come. Same thing with, uh, even now Europeans are, are worried about this, even though they don't have that much to be worried about. But it's, uh, and South Korea, I mean, certainly they, they would start building nuclear weapons and then everything would go, would, would go haywire. So Obama did come up with a very interesting idea and it was in one of his nuclear posture reviews. And that was, he said, look, we will not use nuclear weapons first against a country that does not have nuclear weapons and that is abiding by the non-proliferation treaty. So therefore you, you might still use nuclear weapons against Russia, China, North Korea, maybe at the time Iran looked like they might have nuclear weapons. But not only would this tell people we're not gonna use nukes against country with no nukes, but it might provide even a little bit of an incentive for a country thinking about going nuclear not to. It was an interesting idea. Uh, it was taken out of the nuclear posture review that Trump signed, which in fact said that nuclear weapons have deterrent value across a, a wide range of conflicts, including cyber attacks. So right now the Biden administration is working on a nuclear posture review. It'll probably come out in the spring. Uh, I know for a fact that a lot of the people working on this review are very skeptical about a lot of things regarding nuclear uh, strategy. They pretty much agree with Obama and Biden's take that nobody's, no president's really gonna use nuclear weapons first. We have way more nuclear weapons than we need. Of course, in the meantime, all of this has become very partisan. So it'll be very interesting. Keep your eye on it. Uh, second semester, watch out what, uh, what Biden's nuclear posture review says. Uh, just have a few more minutes left before I open it up to questions. Uh, I didn't get into this too much. One, one, thing, one thing that I have found, look, there have been several, as I said at the beginning, several crises in which presidents <coughs> have seriously thought about nuclear use. And what's happened in all of them really is that and Trump, thankfully, never had one of these crises, but everybody else, a lot of them had the presidents, they looked very deeply into it. Kennedy, most deeply of all, saying, okay, where is this gonna go? And they realized that it goes nowhere. It goes to nowhere but hell. And to the extent that they got a little bit down into the rabbit hole of this crisis, they figured out some way to get out of this rabbit hole as fast as they could through peaceful or diplomatic means. Even presidents who at one time in their administrations had said otherwise. For example, Dwight Eisenhower, who there are, there are declassified documents showing him several times saying any war with Russia or China is gonna go nuclear right away. Right away. I mean, he was horrified by nuclear weapons, but he, he just thought this was gonna be the case. Uh, and yet uh, there was a crisis, I'll go into it in detail if you want, it doesn't really matter for the point of illustrating, making the point. Uh, there was a crisis over the Taiwan, some straits around Taiwan called Kamoi Metsu. And it looked like China was gonna invade them. 
and uh, we guaranteed their safety. And Eisenhower told the chiefs, if the, Soviet, if the Chinese do anything, let's keep the response conventional for as long as we can. Uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson uh, talked about, uh, you know, possibly using nuclear weapons in Vietnam. Anytime ever any general started talking about it seriously, he quashed it instantly. Nixon, you know, there's a famous thing where Nixon, uh, the madman theory, his idea to end office, he told Henry Kissinger, who was doing some peace negotiations in Paris, you know, Henry, go, to, go back to Paris and tell them that this Nixon guy is a nut. Everybody knows I'm a, a, a severe anti-communist. I'm also crazy and I'm gonna use nuclear weapons. Uh, if, if these guys don't come to their senses. Well, for whatever reason, uh, maybe because they didn't think he was that kind of madman, the North Vietnamese paid no attention to it. And Nixon didn't use nuclear weapons. He made, certain, he made uh, similar threats in the Middle East. It never happened. Uh, partly because you know, they looked at, at the plan, they looked at the map, they looked at the numbers, and they realized uh, that this nuclear business, what was it, it had no good end, no matter how limited you kept it. There were people, and still are people, who studied nuclear weapons intently in think tanks or universities <clears throat> or inside the military, and who became consultants or officials, advisors to uh, presidents. And they would still talk in this very rational, cool-headed language about tit-for-tat attacks and how to control the use of nuclear weapons and so forth. You know, there was a, a book on thermonuclear war written in 1960 by Herman Kahn, who said, uh, that one goal of writing this book was to make it possible to talk about nuclear war in rational language. Well, presidents come into this and they know a little bit, but they tend not to know a lot. They, they tend not to have uh, submerged themselves in this stuff, but they know enough to look at a number that's horrifying and to find it horrifying and to say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going there. In other words, you can, you can burrow yourself too deeply into the rabbit hole where some of the concepts you're looking at, especially if you study this stuff over a period of years, becomes so familiar that you think it's real, but in fact, it's not real and never has been real. So I'll end this with just one note. Why? I think if we had gone back in time, you went back in time to 1960, much less 1945, and said, okay, I, I come from the future. I come from 2021. And I'm here to tell you uh, that nobody's ever used nuclear weapons between now and the time that I come from. Okay, first, if they believed that you really came from the future, they certainly wouldn't believe what you would. The, the fact that no nuclear weapons will have been used between 1960 and 2021 would seem maybe even more than the fact that you came in some time machine from 2021. It just wouldn't have been believed. So how has it happened that we've gone this, this 
far this long a time where this hasn't happened? Well, I think a few reasons. One, uh, you know, I mean, deterrence does work to a certain degree. You know, you clobber us, we clobber you. That that makes that, that makes people think a couple times before they act too recklessly. Number two, uh, some of it's just luck. I mean, there are several stories over time where our somebody on our side or their side looks at a radar screen and uh, sees a hundred ICBMs coming their way. And luckily nothing else is going on at the time. And somebody smart says, I don't believe this is really happening. Let me, let me double, triple check this. And, you know, if this had been in the middle of a crisis, say in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis, or from the Russians' point of view, the Korean Airlines Crisis or the Berlin Crisis, then maybe somebody would look at this and say, holy shit, it's happening. We've got to get our missiles flushed out, get the bombers off the ground right away. So part of it, in other words, is luck. And part of it, as I said, is whatever you think about the presidents we've had on a number of grounds or the premiers that Russia's had or whatever, uh, we've been lucky in another sense to have, for the most part, presidents who are diligent enough to examine the situation closely and to conclude that there is no good option when it comes to nuclear weapons. Uh, however, uh, you know, our luck might not hold. I mean, one can envision a crisis and a computer failure that leads one side or the other to launch a preemptive attack before the other one does. Or one can imagine uh, a bonkers president who believes some deep in the rabbit hole briefing that someone gives him about what you can accomplish with nuclear weapons. The lesson though, I'm not saying that you should therefore stop studying this stuff. Uh, in fact, what I've told you should be a good reason to study it all the more thoroughly, because as I said, the way that the presidents who have climbed out of the rabbit hole have climbed out of the rabbit hole is that they have studied, they do look at the situation more carefully. And there's always at least one advisor around to show him what the situation is going to be. So maybe, maybe you'll be that one advisor if you study this uh, and keep studying it for a while longer. So with that, uh, I'll take some questions. Great, um, thank you so, so very much, Fred. That was a, a great talk and inspirational, maybe to a mixed degree at the end there, but uh, really appreciate it. Just to reiterate the rules for participation, uh, under the participant screen, you can raise your hand as one of you already has, um, and I'll call on you. And if anybody has an urgent point related to that, uh, just wait for that answering the question to wind down a little bit, unmute yourself, video yourself, and launch your question. Uh, that's what we call a two finger. Sometimes we're gonna avoid the two finger, just, just jump in and hopefully <coughs> that work. And I finally wanna especially encourage the undergrads to ask questions, don't be afraid. If you're curious about what the answer is, ask the question and your curiosity will guide you to that being a great question. So again, thank you very much, Fred. And the floor is open and first I'll call <coughs> Professor Desch.
You'll have to unmute uh, yourself. There you go. Yeah, thanks, uh, Dan. And uh, thanks for Professor or Dr. Kaplan. Um, I'm about halfway through the bomb, uh, but I'm also a huge fan of the uh, Wizards of Armageddon. And there are many reasons I regret we have to do this by Zoom. Uh, but if you'd have come out here, we could have gone to dinner and I could have gotten you to uh, sign both my, uh, uh, I've got more than these two books, but these are my two favorite. So uh, I'm, I'm about uh, three quarters of the way through the book and I've gone through the two chapters on Berlin and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and I, I'm convinced um, that no president, including the last president, uh, would ever use uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, and to that, I, I think I'm less convinced of the luck piece and more convinced uh, of the uh, nuclear revolution, mutual assured destruction. Um, yeah, I, I'm increasingly coming to think that the details of the PSYOP or Carl Kaysen's uh, you know, sort of uh, back of the envelope alternative to the uh, PSYOP during the Berlin crisis uh, has the effect that, that you mentioned, which is not to convince uh, presidents that they have a real nuclear option. Now, in making this argument, though, I'm sort of cutting against a uh, trend uh, among a number of our colleagues to argue uh, that MAD either is gone or it never existed uh, in the first place. Um, and they make that argument in part based on a lot of the history that you're telling. They say, look, you know, the, the PSYOP uh, was always about uh, preemption. Um, and they'll, you know, talk about your revelations in the Atlantic piece about Carl Kaysen's planning for an alternative to the PSYOP during the uh, uh, third Berlin crisis and say, look, presidents were thinking about uh, actually going first. We've never lived in a mad world. We were always seeking uh, first strike damage, uh, limiting capability. And oh, by the way, with the end of the Cold War, uh, we've act, uh, actually uh, got that, at least vis-a-vis -vis Russia and China uh, and many other uh, smaller nuclear powers. So where do you fall on this? Uh, you know, is MAD gone? Uh, or uh, do you think, in fact, that MAD has always operated at the, uh, the level where the, the nuclear buck stops at the president's desk? Okay, well, let me un unwind some of that. Uh, wait, so I'm looking at somebody's ankle. Okay, uh, let, me, let me unwind some of that. First of all, I meant to say, and let me just wrap this up really quickly. After that review of the PSYOP under George H.W. Bush, we really did start developing options for limited nuclear use. I mean, we can now use, there are options for using as few as 20 nuclear weapons. Now, how limited that is, who knows? If you believe some of the theories about nuclear winter, 80 nuclear weapons could destroy all life on the planet. So, so who knows? But back to your first point. Uh, you know, would any president under any of these past circumstances ever have used nuclear weapons? I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I would say this. 
I do believe that during the Cuban Missile Crisis, if anybody else had been president besides Kennedy, and I include all the very smart people around the table, uh, they would have gone ahead and launched conventional, dropped conventional bombs on the missile sites the Monday after the crisis, the Saturday that the crisis actually ended. And one thing that we discovered later, and then would have invaded Cuba five days later. And one thing we learned many years after the fact is that the Russians had secretly put 40,000 troops on the island of Cuba to repel an invasion. We didn't know about it at the time. And two, that some of the warheads were already loaded on some of those missiles. What if the Russians had launched some of them on warning? Those were nuclear missiles. What if they'd hit the United States? Then what we have done. Or Kennedy thought one reason why he didn't want to attack Cuba was that he thought the Russians would then take over Berlin. And what if they did that? And again, it's easy to say now, oh, well, we wouldn't have dropped nuclear bombs over West Berlin. But uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're as old as me, or you look like you might be almost as old as me, I don't know. Thanks. But, <laughs> but uh, you might remember, or, you know, I be, let's be honest, I barely remember. But you've read books that tell you uh, Berlin was very serious. We weren't just going to let that go. It, it would have been, you know, surrender or suicide. And there was a certain generation of presidents that had no patience for surrender. So... Uh, it's hard to tell. Now, whether there really was mad, this becomes a kind of uh, a technical, almost a semantic point. There was not mad in the sense that we ever had a policy that said, if the Russians attack us, we attack their cities. We destroy their cities. We were always targeting military facilities. However, a lot of those were in or near cities. And as I said, and by the way, this was one place where I get, got it wrong in the Wizards of Armageddon because nothing about McNamara's revised PSYOP at the time had been declassified and everybody I talked to about it had been in the Pentagon, not at SAC. But even after McNamara's revised PSYOP, and as I said, really until the late 80s, early 90s, if the president had ordered a limited attack, it would have been a massive attack anyway. So it would have been de facto mad. It would have been tens, hundreds of millions of people killed. Even if all we were intending to do was a limited strike. The other, the other fallacy about limited strikes, even now, when we really do have the ability, the technical ability to you know, launch a pinprick here and a pinprick there. These pinpricks, by the way, are all even the, the low yield nuclear weapon that you might have heard of, it's about the same explosive yield as Hiroshima. So, I mean, we're talking, this is not a 2,000 pound bomb that knocks down a building in, in, in Iraq. This is, you know, eight kilotons, 8,000 tons, not 2,000 pounds, 8,000 tons, and with radioactivity and so forth. So, even with that, there's an assumption in all these war games, you know, laying out the scenarios, uh, that the presidents who are the chess masters see the whole board. Okay, well, we've knocked out this target and we knocked out that target and they knocked out, then they're knocking out this target. And the, when in fact, all, all hell is probably gonna break loose. 
satellite communications are going to be down deliberately or maybe as a result of, of electromagnetic pulse set off by one of these bombs. It's unclear whether the people in charge will really know what is going on. It's not like, you know, you're looking at a chessboard and you say, oh, hell, it's, it's, it's checkmate in two, in two moves. I might as well give up. No, you don't know. You don't see the whole chessboard. You don't even see the whole chessboard on, on one battlefield, you know, despite all of our network-centric warfare technologies. Uh, so these things, what I'm saying is, and then command control. How much confidence is there that the president is really going to be able to stay in firm command with, say, his submarines? Not only to tell them to launch, but to tell them not to launch. It's unclear. I mean, it's, with us, it's pretty good. But with the Russians, the Chinese, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if anybody knows. So um, how easy it will be to control the escalation, even if both sides' leaders want to control the escalation. And that's unclear either. Uh, we just don't know. So we can be very sanguine about, oh, nobody would really do this. but but. Things can get out of hand once, and you know, we've never started a war. I mean, a real fighting war against another, even with, with whatever weapons, against a country that has nuclear weapons. So who knows what might or might not happen? Who knows what empty threats, who knows what bluffs might be turn real just to avoid, you know, humiliation or defeat or whatever. I mean, so in other words, on the basic premise, I think, <clears throat> I think you're right. Presidents are, 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 you know, when it comes right down to it, they're gonna be more reluctant to use these things than, than the strategists who write the books and the briefings and all that. Uh, but who knows how much more reluctant and who knows under what circumstances. You know, there was a good piece in international security by a young guy from MIT about four or five years ago. I'm uh, having a senior moment about his name, but he went back into uh, a lot of the records of classified war games that were played mm -hmm. at various levels uh, within the services and in uh, OSD. And he found even in a war game environment, it was very, very hard to get players to make decisions that they thought would lead to nuclear escalation. Yeah, I just think that, that yeah. everything you've said about the danger is the core of the uh, deterrent threat of mutual assured destruction. And it seems to be operating uh, in, in most of these cases. You know, how much of it is luck? I don't know. But the, well, the more crises that don't escalate, the, the less I think it's luck. I, I don't disagree. But then you don't know what kind of decision making goes on with. I mean, this is one danger with proliferation. I don't know what the Indians think about this. I don't know what the Pakistanis think about this. There are two minutes warning time from each other in terms of nuclear weapons. I don't know what, what President Xi's people think about this. I don't know what Kim Jong-un thinks about this. Uh, you know, that, that's the thing. Uh, it, it's, it's like uh, in, the, in, the, in the beginnings of, of cyber offensive capabilities, 
there was the idea, well, let's just get all the cyber countries together and make up some rules of engagement. Well, that might've been easy to do when there was United States, Russia, China, France, Britain, Israel. But I don't know where you get, where you draw Iran into this. I don't know where you draw North Korea into this. So again, it's, uh, I think on the whole, you're right. Uh, at the same time, it only takes one exception to the rule to possibly lead to catastrophe. And, and I think that the other thing about it, as time goes on and as more and more crises do not go nuclear, that nuclear weapons might become more and more of an abstract thing. There hasn't been an atmospheric nuclear test since 1963. Nobody has shuddered at the sound and sight of one of these things except in black and white film. Uh, so again, it's, it's, it's the nightmare of what one person I know called the clever briefer, the briefer who comes in and convinces the, 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 the war happy or naive president or premier that, yeah, if we do this and this and this, we can get away with it. And then the temptation. And then the, the poor intelligence about, you know, the preemption, the feeling that the other side is about to attack. And so you get in your preemptive attack before he gets in his preemptive attack. Again, who knows? I hope we never know. That's, that's the hope. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, Professor Goltz? Um, I'm happy to ask, but I'm also um, happy if you choose to not say much and try to get some questions from students but, uh, in response. But uh, um, given your talk and your answer to Mike, um, I wonder um, if you think it matters kind of in a current context. So there are lots of current nuclear questions that might be informed by this nuclear history. Um, and so I'll, I'll just pick one, which is, um, does it matter that um, the North Koreans might have an ICBM? And, um, you know, if you really think presidents would never launch nukes anyway, you might conclude this makes no difference. And this is all sort of a tempest in a teapot. If you have a traditional extended deterrence framework, this might make a big difference. I, I just wonder how you, you know, kind of sort out, you know, what matters in the world today in light of how you understand the bomb. And so I, I float the yeah. North Korea example. Well, I mean, I'm always nervous by, I mean, I don't think Kim Jong-un is crazy. He's not insane. If anybody in, in this forum were the president of North Korea and had the same strategic objectives as he does, which is basically to perpetuate his regime, uh, any of us would want to build nuclear weapons too. He's not going to get rid of his nuclear weapons. Just forget about that as an objective. It's all he's got going for him. It's all that he thinks he has to prevent someone from just bringing his palace down. And he's probably right. It's the only way that he gets anything in the world. Uh, if, some, if he's about to go down for whatever reason or another, then I'm a little nervous that someone like him has an ICBM and has the ability to launch it or an MRBM and the ability to launch it. Maybe he takes so down- you, Maybe he takes If you were the president of the United back. States, would you then use nukes? 
No, I don't know. I, he's not. I think, look, it comes right to my view on North Korea is that ultimately this guy is completely self-interested and therefore deterrence with a guy like, I think H.R. McMaster at one time said classical nuclear deterrence doesn't work with a guy like this. Well, I think, no, it absolutely worked with a guy like this who is just self-interested. This is it. And so you say, hey, you pull any shit with this, you're, you're, you're gone. You're gone. Your whole country's gone. I think that has a, a major, major pull. But what if he's about to go down? Does he bring everything with it? I don't know. I would, it, it, and, and then, you know, we're, we're now talking like rational people. Politically, when North Korea starts to get a new an ICBM or starts, jet, you know, processing plutonium again, which they seem to be opening up their reactor, I mean, this, this leads, and this is one reason, I mean, this gets into a very different subject and I'll, I'll stop then to, to, to get the questions to students, but this is why I think it's a very bad idea. I don't know how to get out of it to have a politics right now where it's very difficult to form some kind of alliance on some issues with Russia or China. Because I mean, if North Korea starts getting really proliferate, getting more and more nuclear weapons, China gets very nervous too. And until now, China, they don't want to put too many clamps on North Korea because the fact that we're nervous in North Korea makes us keep a large part of our military force up in North Asia, in the Northern part of the Pacific and less of it in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait. So it's a way to keep us bottled up and they like that. But at some point, I think even China might say, okay, this, we've, got, we've, got to, we've got to help control this thing now because it's, it's getting out of hand. But yeah, generally, no. I don't think that someday, one day, I don't think Kim Jong-un all of a sudden has an ICBM that can destroy Los Angeles and he therefore has the slightest intention of actually fighting Los Angeles. At the same time, I don't know what his command control system is. I don't know. I don't know who, who else have, might have launch authority besides him, and I don't know if anybody knows any of this stuff. That's 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 the the, the worrisome thing. I think. Thank you very much, uh, Salim. You're next. If you can unmute yourself and video yourself, thank you. Um. Hello. Great talk. Um. It's a bit. I'm actually. Um, from. Midnight, uh, there are new books that really get me to do that. Um, so I have a question that ties with your previous book, uh, because uh, Professor Desh mentioned uh, visits of Armageddon. I was also a big fan of Dark Territory. And one of the things that get talked a lot in the nuclear space these days is the cyber threat. You know, is it possible that there would be a, um, a an adversarial intrusion, disinformation, some sort of cyber subterfuge that would lead to war. And you're someone who's in a unique standpoint, having died your first nuclear second, at least you know more contemporarily. Um, how do you see those, those two silos talking to each other? Uh, because for those of us from the outside, it's much tougher to know the answer to that question. Thank you. Okay. Well, there are a couple angles to this. Uh, you, you were a little garbled in some of it, but I think I got, I got the main question. 
that the, the the microphone was or something. But but I think I know what you're saying. So there, I, I would I would break this down to two questions: Is there a way that one country can use cyber means to either instigate or to block nuclear use? Is that one question? In other words, if somebody wants to, some third party wants to have all hell break loose, is there, is there some cyber means that they could just launch a couple weapons of China's or ours or whatever? Or the other time, the other hand, uh, is there some way for uh, using cyber means we could just prevent Russia, China, or North Korea from launching a weapon? These, this is called left of launch. Uh, targeting it left of the launcher in other words you do something you enter you disrupt a country's command control system so that he cannot launch a nuclear weapon or that i don't know whether you want to do this that you do launch it yourself you know one principle of, of cyber is that if you can intrude into a computer network you can manipulate it you can not only monitor it, see what's going on, but then start commandeering it. Uh, that's true with some things, it's not true with other things. Uh, there was a time when the United States had the ability to shut down Soviet command control. This wasn't generally known, but it could have happened. Uh, I don't know if it's still true, probably not. But in any case, uh, so yeah, there, there's, some, there's some feeling that we could. now. Therefore, is some president going to say, now we, we can go into North Korea now, and he thinks that he might be able to use his nuclear weapons, but nah, he can't. We're going to shut off his command control. That's quite a gamble. It's quite a gamble to take that uh, maybe he has some alternative command control that you don't know anything about and that you haven't disrupted. Uh, I, think, I think one thing about cyber war and nuclear war that's worth pointing out. Sometimes these things are looked at as discrete phenomena. I think they aren't. I think cyber, tool, cyber tools are weapons that would be used in build up to or during a war. And in fact, we've done this quite a lot. Uh, for example, during the Iraq war, uh, Toward like 2007, when things had a turnaround, one reason for that was we, the NSA got involved, and started intruding into insurgents' computer networks, you know, decoding them. And linguists would pretend to be insurgent leaders and send messages, let's meet here at four o'clock tomorrow. And they would meet and there'd be a drone overhead and boop, they're all dead. 7,000 insurgents were killed that way in 2007. I think during there are lots of wars where, you know, I mean, the big fear is that, let's say we get into a war with China. The fear is that the first thing Chinese do is to launch an anti-satellite weapon, uh, knock off our GPS satellites, knock out all their communications gear, and then start messing around uh, with, with, our, with our own communications. We have ways of, you know, and Israel has done this as well sometimes, for example, during the uh, the attack on the nascent nuclear reactor in Syria, uh, they interfered in, in the air defense radars 
that, that Syrians were looking at. It looked like the screen was blank when in fact four F-15s were coming their way, but they didn't see them because they planted false images on the radar screen. So I think Syria, I think cyber is part, is one aspect of future war, present war. And nuclear weapons, I think, I mean, anybody would be crazy, well, that doesn't mean it won't happen, to just launch nuclear weapons out of the blue, but it is a tool of deterrence of an escalate, deterring escalation of a war that's going on. In other words, to say, okay, let's not, don't take this too far. We've got nuclear weapons that we can bring in that will bat you down. Uh, you know, this might be a, a reason why Israel still exists. They have 100 to 200 nuclear weapons and everybody knows this, even though Israel doesn't acknowledge it officially. So if, if, if somebody cuts too close to destroying Israel, Israel takes them out. Uh, that's one reason for nuclear weapons is not just to deter nuclear aggression, but to also deter heavy conventional aggression. So I think nuclear weapons are also an instrument in deterring and as it's designed fighting, and thank God so far we haven't used them to fight a nuclear war. In other words, it's not conventional war, cyber war, nuclear war, it's all one piece that, that could be part of a, of a war and that the plans for cyber offensives and for the use of nuclear weapons assumes that that is how it will be, that, that it will be an instrument in an ongoing or about to happen war, some phase of its escalation. Great, thank you very much. Uh, next up is John McGarity. Just had a question. Um, first of all, thank you so much for the talk. Uh, you have to turn up your volume a bit. I, I can barely hear you. I, what about now? That's good. Um, I just want to say thank you. Um, the talk was great. And you talked a lot about PSYOPs and, and what kind of the history of that was. Are there any like specific PSYOPs per each nuclear threat, like moving away from Soviet Union, Russia towards uh, China, uh, North Korea, or even India or Pakistan? Um, and do we benefit from letting our allies in those regions know about those psyops and sort of be on board with that? Or is that something that we sort of keep close to the chest? Well, the, the psyop, and it, you know, it's, it's still called single integrated operational plan. It's not really single or integrated anymore. But yeah, there are options like that within the psyop. For many years, and in fact, it might still be true, China was removed from the psyop. It's like, well, they're not going to be, if there's a general war, China's not going to be a part of it. They're still not in it, but now there are, there are special uh, O plans, operational plans for special countries and for certain regions. And there might be nuclear options within those O plans. And those plans are much more controlled by the Joint Chiefs of Staff in Washington. In other words, it's no longer a strategic command uh, Omaha operation. So yeah, there are, and, and in terms of who knows about this, uh, yeah, they know about it in 
a somewhat classified capacity. They know about it in general terms. And it's to the extent that there is military cooperation involved, then in more operational terms, not necessarily all of it, and maybe they don't even want to know all of it. I mean, Japan, for example, you know, they, they don't really want any nuclear weapons based on their territory. They, yeah, they, they probably do know something about our O plans against North Korea and our plans that involve China. But, but it's not, they're read into it in a kind of a, a general way. So yeah, it's, 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 it's stretched out, but, but yeah, there's, you know, there's plans for anything and uh, for any, for, for plans for, for a country or a region where somebody else has nuclear weapons uh, or where some other country's nuclear weapons can be used, then there probably is a nuclear option within that plan. I'm told, for example, that the nuclear option for the plan involving North Korea uh, involves the use of up to 80 nuclear weapons. Not necessarily 80 weapons all at once, but there are 80 targets. There are up, and they might not all be hit at once, but there are discrete, there are targets identified as targets that might be hit by nuclear weapons if necessary. Great, thank you very much. Uh, next up is Nicholas, and anybody else wants to join the list, please uh, use the participant screen and raise your hand. Thank you. Uh, hi, so I'm curious, going back to a point that you raised in I think, a couple of your, uh, sorry, prior comments, um, how, how do you think about the, the problem of sort of uncertainty regarding how nuclear leaders or nuclear armed leaders think? Um, because you said, you know, Kim, you don't think is crazy, but that doesn't mean we think he's quote unquote rational in our terms or that we think he thinks about the world and perceives the world the way we do. And you actually, in your prior comment said that you don't know how China thinks about this. You don't know how India thinks about this. So is that sort of one of the sources of your worry that, that between that level of whether you want to call it cross-cultural uncertainty about sort of mental processing or something less jargony, um, that between that naive politicians and a clever advisor that you could get worries about, say, just this is a hypothetical situation, but like Kim thinks that we're so bound by the nuclear taboo that he actually is, is confident in his capacity to provoke us or launch a missile without re receiving nuclear retaliation because he doesn't think the U.S. will follow through on its threat or he thinks he can get away with some X or Y, even though the information we have available to us clearly indicates to our intelligence that that would be suicidal. He might not know that or think that or might be overconfident. Or I'm just curious as to how you think about sort of the, that middle ground between you need a crazy leader to launch a nuke and you need some interplay of uncertainty about psychologies and mindsets to lead to an escalation uh, by both countries. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's part of it. <clears throat> and, and you're right. The idea of posing a quote unquote credible nuclear threat uh, suggests that you, you, have to, you have to create an impression that you might use them, in which case 
you have to create an impression that you under certain circumstances might be a little crazy. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, remember the problem with mutual assured, with, with, with massive retaliation was, well, nobody will believe that we'll really do this because we might get clobbered. So then you have to create certain plans and weapons and capabilities to allow us ourselves to use nuclear weapons in a way, in, in a more limited way so that we're not clobbering you and therefore you might not clobber us back. And therefore, once you, once you go down that rabbit hole to a certain degree, then nuclear deterrence and nuclear war fighting become identical. You, 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 you make this thing as okay, if, if I'm just gonna say, hey, strike us, we're just gonna blow the shit out of you. That's not credible. Well, I have to make it more credible. So more limited attacks, more rational war plans in the attack. Then you've got to really do it to show that you have the ability to do it and the will to do it. Then yeah, the, the definition of nuclear deterrence becomes the ability to fight a nuclear war. And that becomes, you know, that, that's, that's broaching craziness, right? So, but, but to, the, to the main point about, you know, what does she think? What, is, what does Kim Jong-un think? What, what do, I, I'm worried there about two things. One, you know, our nuclear systems are locked. You know, there's a two key, it's a two key system on the ICBMs. There are certain very elaborate command control procedures uh, that have to be gone through. Not, not just anybody could come in and say, okay, I'm telling you the president's dead. I, I'm, I'm in charge now launch the weapons. It takes a little more than that. Uh, Soviet Union has similar kinds of things. I don't know what anybody else has. I assume that the CIA has some idea of what some of these people have, but I'm not sure to what extent. Pakistan, the United States helped them build permissive action locks, uh, permissive action links, which lock up their nuclear weapons except certain codes. Uh, they took us out at the point where we were going to help them build the codes because they thought that would mean we could get into it. And they were right. We wanted to get into it to lock it down if necessary. Uh, the other worry is that you take something like India-Pakistan. And I think one could make a case that there would have been a much bigger war between India and Pakistan by now if they both didn't have nuclear weapons. So there's kind of a deterrent. But again, what if there's an accident? What if there's... Uh, false data on an early warning thing. And you know, between the US and Russia, US and China, there's 30 minutes between the, when a missile going from you know, New York to Moscow. There was like two minutes, three minutes to go from New Delhi to you know, Islamabad. Uh, there was much less time to work out, is this real? Is it really happening? Is this a mistake? And you know, that's the kind of thing that, that can be worrisome. Uh, and again, yeah, it's, you know, North Korea, uh, I assume China, the weapons are pretty locked up because everything else is pretty locked up uh, for many years and including even somewhat now, the Soviets didn't let their submariners go out too far for fear that they would defect. Uh, China doesn't have much of a blue, sea, blue water nuclear navy in that regard either. I don't know what the lockup situation is for North Koreans nukes. I don't know, you know, if somebody, if, if, if Kim Jong-un keels over, I don't know. Does his sister get have launch authority? Does the commander of the military have launch authority? 
again, I'm assuming that there are people who think about these things and get as much intelligence as they can about them. I don't know how much intelligence that is. Uh, so it, 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 it's, it's, it's on those various levels. Oh, I've got a two finger on that, but if Alex could also ask his question at the same time, that'll probably take us uh, to six and we'll be done. My two finger is about this two key system and whatnot. What about pre-delegation, which I think would be right up the kinds of themes that you've developed, but you haven't talked about very much. Well, you know, what I, kind of I, dangers have we heard about? But let's, see, let's get Alex's question on the table. Okay. Uh, Alex, can you go? Sounds good. Uh, so uh, thanks for the wonderful talk. I want to pick up on Nick's question just now about psychological biases and to build on one of your early responses to Mike, such that nuclear crises that do not escalate might create learning episodes for future policymakers. And I think that's largely plausible, but I would like to play the devil's advocate here because at least with the way in which you presented the material during the talk, it seems that many U.S. decision makers still contemplated the nuclear option at first until someone in their advisor circles told them that there is actually no viable nuclear option and they decided to get against going nuclear. So my question is if learning is happening and is largely linear, or at least we hope it is, given the stakes and costs involved, why is it that there is a constant attempt to revive the, the option of going nuclear, but then going against it anyway, right? Learning should create powerful incentives or at least, at least rational learning should create powerful incentives to take the option off the table altogether. And that should, that should stick across uh, successive leaders, right? I'm gonna, so, I'm gonna you, oh, I'm uh, just, I'm gonna, go ahead, yeah. Go okay, ahead, go I'm ahead. Where you're going. I'm, I'm gonna tell you something that might surprise you. Okay, sounds good. So yeah, um, I was been, gonna ask you, you know, what, 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 did, what did you find from the archival records? Uh, what right. are some of the biases that are driving this kind of pattern? Okay, but here's the thing that kind of obviates your whole very good point. In the entire nuclear age, there has been only one president who has played the president in a nuclear war game. And that's Jimmy Carter. And he did it twice. There is only one president. There is every, every other get war game, you know, some cabinet member plays the president, some sub cabinet member plays the cabinet. They go through and they do these very interesting exercises where they go through Maybe somebody briefs the president on it at some point. The fact is most presidents don't wanna go anywhere near this. They're not interested in it. They think it's all bullshit. They, 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 they don't even, you know, I mean, Carter went through evacuation plans. I mean, he, he, the guy, the one president who probably thought nuclear weapons were more immoral who, thought, who, who more deeply thought that nuclear weapons were immoral than anybody else, immersed himself in nuclear war planning and operations and surprise drills more than anybody, anybody. And as I say, no president before or since has even gone so far as to play himself in war game. So there is no opportunity for learning and and, oh, gee, in the last exercise, Mr. President, you wanted to know about X, Y, and Z. Well, here's the answer. So the next time we do this, let's take that into account. No, there was no last time. There is no next time. They learn this as it happens. I mean, they all get the briefing. They all get the PSYOP briefing when they come into office. They wait a while, usually. It's, oh, shit, okay, let's go through it. They look at it. They're suitably horrified. 
Some of them ask some questions and that's it. Let's move on to something else. This isn't gonna happen. And then when it happens, suddenly it happens. And like during the Berlin crisis, you have John Kennedy who got all the briefings asking a lot there, when he was briefed about this counterforce study, he wrote out, it's in his handwriting, it's in the Kennedy library, 10 questions. One of which was, if I launch some missiles, can I, can I recall any of them? Now, as you know, as anybody who's looked at it for a minute would know, the answer is no, no, you can't. He didn't know at that point, at that point late in the game, he still had to be told that no, Mr. President, that's it, you can't. And once you do that, it's all over. So there, you know, it would be nice to, to on a lot of things, a lot of different issues, to have the Oval Office as kind of a, a social science laboratory to work out different approaches to you know, problems of poverty, global warming, or homelessness, whatever. It doesn't work that way. You know, <laughs> just nuclear weapons. I mean, once I think uh, Henry Kissinger, who had some good lines about things, he hired somebody and said, the guy said, uh, oh, I look forward to coming. I, I, I'll learn quite a lot. And he goes, you're not going to have any time to learn anything. I mean, you come in there with what you know, and then you're just hit with 20,000 things at once. And you go with what you know at the time. Uh, I mean, it would be nice. And that's why you have experts around you who have kind of gone deep into this and that, experts that you trust. Uh, I mean, and then, you know, this can go the wrong way too. I mean, Biden, most of his big advisors are people that he's worked with for years, decades even. In some ways that's good. In some ways it can lead to unwitting groupthink. All these people think in pretty much the same way. What if something gets thrown at them like of Afghanistan to take an example, where no, things didn't work out that way. Now what do we do? Um, so, but the question about pre-delegation, which I can handle very quickly, I didn't address that because I, I don't have a, I couldn't come to a firm conclusion about it. I have heard from equally authoritative sources very different things about pre-delegation. I mean, Dan Ellsberg, who did a big study on this in the late 50s and early 60s, you know, claims in his books and tells me that there was a, there were pre-delegated authority to use nuclear weapons going down in some cases to commanders on destroyer boats. I've heard other people say, no, nah, we looked into that, it's not true. I've heard that later this was, yeah, it was true, but it's no longer true. I mean, it is true. One thing that was very interesting in January 6th crisis was that you saw an officer with a big briefcase tailing, a big suitcase tailing Vice President Pence. Vice President, you know, the president has somebody with the football, as they call it, following him around all the time where all the nuclear codes are there. Well, the vice president has someone like this too, in case the president is, is uh, you know, disabled for some, way, for some reason. The vice president can take over and has the authority to take over like that. Beyond that, again, I, you know, the way it works, this is a little alarming too. The president can't push a button. There's no button. There is no button and there's no palm print you know, that's not the way it works. The president, what happens? What's, what's in the, uh, 
the, the, the big suitcase is mainly a big book, a communications device, and there's codes. And it's connected to the National Military Command Center in the basement of the Pentagon. And the president first authenticates himself, like, yes, I really am me. And I don't know how that happens. And I don't know if I want to know how that happens, but it happens. And then the, what, the, the officer who's with him helps him go through the various codes. This code is this kind of attack. Do you do this? You do that attack. You do that. You do that attack. This all gets funneled to a one-star general in the National Military Command Center, who then transmits it to the commanders of SAC and to their missile bases and the submarine pens and all that. Uh, and that's how it works. And the guy who, the people in between the president and all these other things are chosen to be obedient. You know, if some crazy president decides we're going to do this and, you know, there, there, there's nobody else there. It's not like he needs to take a vote with the cabinet or anybody else. It's his decision alone. And uh, that one star general could say, nope, I'm out of here, not doing this. I mean, it would be an act of very patriotic treason <laughs> in a way. There was a time when, when Nixon was going crazy in his last days in office, Secretary of Defense James Schlesinger and, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff consulted and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff sent a note to the other chiefs saying, if you get any really bizarre orders from the White House, contact me first. Now, he was stepping out of line. Neither the Secretary of Defense nor the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff were in the, the uh, line of command, the chain of command for that, but they did it. And it would have been interesting to see what happened if Nixon did issue some crazy order, which he didn't. So I don't know what, but yeah, you know, what if Washington is blown up? You would think there must be some option. There must be some provision. Let's say Washington is blown up. The president didn't get in his AWACS plane fast enough to hightail it out of the Capitol. So all these nuclear weapons lying around. Surely there must be some pre-delegation that somebody could step in. But to tell you the truth, I, I mean, I looked into this. I asked a lot of people. I, I couldn't find out. If you find out, let me know. Great. Um, happy, optimistic way to end the talk. <laughs> but let's give a great uh, round of applause to Dr. Kaplan for a fascinating, truly fascinating talk. And for those of us uh, joining at dinner, please uh, go to your other link and join us there. In a few minutes, we'll take a, a, the pause that refreshes and meet back with Dr. Kaplan. But, but thanks again. That was really great. I could tell people were on the edge of their seat. And for those who wanted to know, the, the article that Mike Desch mentioned was Would Leaders Push the Button? Uh, International Security Fall 2018 by Reed Pauley. So there you go. Thanks, Fritz. Okay, so See everybody. I come back in five or ten? Or? Five, five, seven, something like that. Okay. Yep. See ya. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu/slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc
Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.